welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I are in the studio and we're going to continue our series on the life of Martin Luther. And we've gotten to that year that is most associated with Martin Luther, 1517, when he posted the 95 Theses on October 31st. And so today we're going to talk about that, but but really we're going to talk about indulgences and what indulgences were. I think there's some misconceptions about what they they actually were and the history of them. And, and then we'll get to the end where he posts the 95 Theses and we'll see how far we go today. So uh, we'll start off with just setting the scene here. Um, so Luther has been a, a professor at, at Wittenberg for a while now. Um, he's not really known too far outside of of his you know his his little territory. Um, he's been to Rome. He's 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 seen as what he's going to see. He doesn't travel much in his life, and he's really starting to get bothered by this indulgence thing. And and the last couple episodes we talked about Frederick the Wise, his elector, his ruler, um, and how he was a big lover of relics and also participated in indulgences. And so these things are going to come to a head, and Luther's maybe going to have to um, uh, tiptoe lightly. Um, sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. So first of all, we'll just talk about indulgences. It really is actually a positive word. It's now become negative, but it's an, <clears throat> a positive word. It can mean to, to kind of show favor if I indulge a child. Um, I'm showing favor to that child and something specific that maybe they want or desire. And so the idea of an indulgent was a release, not really from sin. That's kind of the misconception, like indulgences paid for your sins. That's, that's not really found anywhere. That may be a misconception that not only we see, looking back at this point of history, but the people of that time may have conflated what an indulgence was with actually paying the price for sins. It really was a release from what we would call the penalty of sin. And so the ramifications of sin. And, and Wade, maybe you want to jump in there and just kind of talk about sin, guilt, penalty of sin. Uh, maybe you got a better handle on those uh, medieval terms. Sure. Well, I think uh, one thing to keep in mind is that in the early church, the, the later early church, this is not necessarily right away, you had a pretty strict penitential system that developed, especially in connection to persecutions. Um, people who had wavered in persecution and wanted to be restored to the church um, would sometimes have public penances, uh, a certain amount of time to kind of make clear their sincerity again. I don't know that as Lutherans we would look at that and think that that was a necessarily a good or healthy or very consistent gospel way of doing stuff. Um, but part of this also related to the Latin language and how that influenced Christianity. Um, Greek is a philosophical language. It's very adept at handling the abstract. I would say um, it bears a lot in common with German in that way. There's just certain things you can say in Greek and German that are harder to convey in Latin or English. Um, Latin was a very practical language, but it was also a legal language. So it was a language of law, um, language of the court, language of justice, um, language of uh, you know sentences that fit the crime. And so even repentance, which in the Greek, what metanoia um, becomes due penance in Latin. Um, so repentance becomes connected with penance. And the idea develops of making satisfaction um, 
for the temporal consequences of one's sin. So the eternal consequences of our sin, that's been paid for by Christ. So even if you land in purgatory, you're not in hell, and that's all because of Jesus. But the idea being you might die before you were able to make satisfaction for all the temporal consequences of your sin in this life. And I don't mean temporal consequences just like if you rob a bank, you go to jail. But the idea of making satisfaction. So growing up in the Catholic Church myself, when I would go to uh, confession, I would confess, the priest would absolve me, but then he would add something I would do to make satisfaction. Usually that was to say a certain amount of prayers. Um, sometimes it might be going to a place. Sometimes it might be restoring something um, that you had caused harm to or had taken. And so you have, especially with kind of the strict penitential system that begins to develop, this notion of what do we do if we die before we've made satisfaction for the temporal consequences of our sins. As church history uh, continues, for a number of reasons, this um, idea of purgatory develops and becomes more prominent, especially by the 12th century or so. It begins to play a more prominent role. And so this idea develops that Christ saves us from hell. So if, if I die, the only way I'm going straight to heaven is if I've somehow made satisfaction for uh, the temporal consequences of all my sins in this life. Very few people, um, not even very devout popes, are going to go straight to heaven in this way of thinking. Uh, As if there was such a thing. Right. But um, uh, I like Gregory the Great. Yeah, there was a couple in the early on. Yeah. and uh, But this place of purgatorio then, purgatory, is a place of purging where I'm being purged of um, all that still kind of clings to me from the temporal consequences of my sin. So once again, the good news of purgatory is you're not in hell. The bad news is it's a lot like hell, um, and there, you could be there a while. Indulgences then develop as a way of helping people um, avoid as much time in purgatory through acts of devotion. Oftentimes uh, they were associated with, for instance, maybe going on a crusade, um, going on a pilgrimage, uh, giving alms to the poor. And they were meant to have attached to them uh, signs of contrition, sorrow over sin. Eventually that kind of gets changed to you should at least have attrition. You know that you should feel sorry, um, even if you don't feel as sorry as you probably should. And as you have, especially with the plagues and um, mortality rates that just go sky high for a while where the church is just not able to keep up with all who are dying, um, this takes on a more transactional view. And the church really becomes uh, focused as much, if not more, on the dead than on the living. We tend to think of the church in Protestantism and especially in Lutheranism of people are here for us to get them into heaven. Really, the church kind of at, in the Middle Ages leading up to Luther had become we're here to hopefully get ourselves into heaven too, but especially also to help those who have died in Christ get out of purgatory and into heaven too. Um, as is wont to happen with anything in the church, um, this practice of indulgence, which I, I do think was began with good intentions, even if it was theologically problematic, becomes easily corruptible, and it becomes more transactional, um, and as you have a growing moneyed economy, you have a growing merchant class, um, wealth is increasingly, uh, you know, you have record books for, um, you know, uh, what do you call that, double, uh, 
double column bookkeeping or whatever, right? People kind of ideas of credit, um, increased trade. You have kind of this wealthy, growing wealthy merchant kind of middle class that feels somewhat guilty about being wealthy. Um, and you have people who are able to pay for things um, more than they would have been able to do in the past. And the church, um, for better or for worse, and I hear some corruption does come in, begins to, it becomes more common to get an indulgence for a financial transaction. Now, any good Catholic theologian at this time would have said, well, this financial transaction is the sign of your contrition. It's the sign of your sorrow over your sin. But it still becomes transactional, and as any layperson is able to do, uh, can be easily misunderstood then. And you have people who increasingly take this as kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, not free. You're paying something for it. Um, But it undermines piety rather than increasing it. Uh, Frederick's relics, for instance, we talked about maybe he, he probably didn't believe every relic he had was legit, but he thought they could serve as a vehicle for piety. People came for pious motives. Um, perhaps seeing the relic led them to contemplate pious things. Uh, the the piety element of it begins to drop off. And Luther, um, pastorally, is especially concerned with this at the beginning. Um, Frederick did not allow the sales of sale of indulgences um, like Tetzel and that in Saxony because he didn't want the competition with his own relics with the All Saints Foundation. But you have people that increasingly are saying to their pastor, you know, I'm good, I bought this piece of paper. Um, Oftentimes you would make that transaction for relatives as well. But I think it is helpful for us to remember this is not, it was not originally intended to be um, just, you know, like going to Meyer and buying something or whatever the stores buy you. It was meant to be attached to some sort of contrition and pious action and uh, it was never to get you to keep you from going to hell. That was Jesus' job. Um, it was to get you out of purgatory. Now we obviously have issues with purgatory as a teaching as well, and it you know purgatory doesn't develop in the East in the same way that it does in the West. As far as purgatory becomes extremely prominent in the West, and in fact uh, it makes its way into the Mass, into the liturgy the development of private masses being said for the dead, um, that you're going to endow a chantry or a monastic order to be sane masses for your own soul and for the repose of of the souls of the dead. This is going to become a central component of the Western Church and its piety and its liturgical life. Um, So when Luther goes after this, even though we'll probably point out many times during this series, the 95 Theses, are one of the less Lutheran things that Luther writes. Um, he writes other stuff about the disputation against the scholastics and then the Hellbuck disputation, things that are much more Lutheran when we think of the themes of Lutheranism as we know it today. Um, they will be big simply for um, really attacking a linchpin of uh, Roman theology and piety and also a linchpin of the Roman mass and liturgical practice. Uh, in many ways, the church was organized around the dead, and uh, and Luther is going to really um, attempt to free the church to be salt and light for the living. Um, this is a, a big reorienting of what the church is, how it worships, how we live out our Christianity, 
Uh, and this is also then going to contribute to the shift from having a spiritual class that is, you know, the, 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 the A-team of piety that's working to get itself out of purgatory, but also many others um, to the doctrine of vocation will spring out of this as well. I guess one last thing with that, too, on this idea of having a spiritual A-team. In connection with indulgences, um, what was very important for that was this treasury of merit, right? The idea was that Christ and the saints had done more than they themselves needed. Obviously, Christ had, but also the saints. Um, and the church, right, the the holiest of the people in the church had, um, they had done more good than they individually needed in some cases. And so what the church had was this treasury of merit, and this goes back to the idea of the keys, right? They're going to attach this to the keys, which then Peter, um, the Roman church will say, right, the rock on which the church is built, is able to dispense. Now, Luther and others will say, well, why doesn't the church just dispense um, this treasure of merits to everyone so everyone goes right to heaven? Um, the Roman church would answer with that, well, this is, it's connected with one's devotion and contrition and the liturgical life of the church. But this is also then going to be the springboard which will lead Luther to write on the Babylonian captivity of the church and attack the sacramental system, which in many ways was built not only for those alive now, but uh, the sacramental system in many ways was um, a cult of the dead as well. All right. I just went through my personal purgatory. You talked like 10 minutes straight without even breathing. You asked me to... This I am one, impressed. Yeah. I, hopefully I wasn't breathing heavy. I thought I did <laughs> not breathe too much. You take a break now um, and, and recoup. Oh, that um, reminds me. I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, it's maybe just to add a few things uh, there. Not really add, but just maybe highlight a few things. Um, when we think of this idea of the penalty of sin, it's not an exact parallel, but you may think of, okay, your your kid messes up and, and spray paints a building, and you're going to make your kid wash it or pay for that. Like there's going to be, you're forget the kid's forgiven, you could easily pay for it, but you're going to teach them a lesson. It's, it's, it's partly kind of a, um, it is a spiritual exercise to say, okay, there's ramifications for this. And, and pastors in private confession will have this kind of um, uh, spiritual advice. Um, you know, I, I really want you to think on this on Romans chapter 8 this week, you know, or something like that. So there was kind of this already, this little system here where it was natural for a pastor, or could at least be um, thought of as natural for a pastor to give this sort of spiritual advice. Um, the, the second thing to think about is really, it, you can think about Matthew 18, the public, you know, if, if someone does not confess their sins, you take it uh, to, to the church, you make it public, and there, there's an idea there of a public repentance too. And so you see these things that are um, really not not too foreign from good practices in the church. Definitely gets law-oriented, right? Where you say, okay, now you do this, and you already see the transactual kind of understanding, and then that, of course, becomes uh, multiplied when you have the idea of the treasury of merit by, by 
uh, Christ and the saints, that they have so much left over. Their good is so much better than, than um, um, their bad. They did so much more uh, to make up for the penalties of their small sins, speaking of the saints in particular, that they have ones to, to give out. So then, of course, all things that become corrupt like this, um, uh, there's going to be politicians who are going to take a hold of it, right? And so uh, you have, it becomes a fundraising uh, arm of the church. It becomes a tactic there, and there's people that would speak against that and pump the brakes on that, but the lure of money is just too powerful very often. And so you may even think about, okay, there's a German market for indulgences, and within the German market there's territories where you sort of had to have permission uh, from the leader to go in and sell indulgences, and there may be uh, the elector of Saxony is going to say, um, no to somebody else's indulgent sale from a different territory for competition, or maybe he's just angry at that guy for right now. Um, there, there's all sorts of that, that, that politicizing. And when you start... And with that, and just not to interrupt up briefly, it's so Frederick will ban Tetzel selling indulgences in Saxony, but you were getting indulgences in Saxony mm-hmm. for visiting the all. So it wasn't as if there were no indulgences in Saxony. Right. And and the border there is so people were leaving, right, and going across borders to buy these indulgences. And that's kind of like... Like the equivalent of cigarettes today if, uh, you know, Illinois has a higher tax on well, cigarettes yeah, was, than Wisconsin and people drive to Wisconsin to get their cigarettes I, and then bring them back. I was just going to say in Minnesota, you know, I don't think you could... You, there were you couldn't sell, buy alcohol on Sunday, so people in the western uh, or the eastern suburbs of uh, Minnesota would go over to Wisconsin to buy on Sunday. Well, you're just losing revenue there, right? I mean, at some point, the stream of revenue becomes more important than your um, your integrity, right? So there's all sorts of politicizing going there, and it's also a market. It really is, and so you have a salesman, and the salesman's not going to sit there and 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 make sure you know that this really doesn't get you out of, of, of purgatory or hell necessarily. It's much more about your repentance. This is a sign. You know, all the nuances that we kind of talked about. And this is originally was something that meant this, and now we've attached this pilgrimage or this um, buying of an indulgence to this. This is your way of saying, I'm sorry, I messed up, I'm learning from this or whatever, I'm taking, uh, I'm taking this penalty of sin. You know, Tetzel's not going to probably explain all that because he's got to sell, right? Right. Well, and he'll go, so, I mean, the the alleged slogans he used, I mean, the, the when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory rings, um, even Rome will censure, censure him for mm-hmm. some of this. And the idea of, you know, allegedly Tetzel or others were saying, even should you defile the Virgin Mary, mm-hmm. right, this will take care of you. Um, it's usually in a salesman's best interest to, to try to make the sale. Yeah, and what about your, what about Grandpa? You know, grandpa's in there, and you're spending money on this. And right? this would often they would have when the salesman came. You would have people acting out scenes from hell or purgatory, you know, fires, and you wanted to. Uh, it wasn't uncommon to stoke the flames, you know, to. So you're you're playing on people. Same as it, nothing. Marketing has been marketing for as long mm-hmm. as there's been human beings. Yeah. So the specific political scene that Luther is going to write uh, in, in that Melu is going to be Albert. I keep saying Albert of Brandenburg, which is actually correct. He's from Brandenburg, but he's the Archbishop becomes the Archbishop of Mainz, so he's probably better known as Albert of Mainz. Um, he wants to 
really he's tasked with reopening the German market. And he has an ulterior motive, however, because in order to buy his archbishop, Rick, he had to not really not buy it. That would be too too um, sinister of a term, but he's going to make a healthy donation uh, to uh, to the Pope. Because he wasn't supposed to be able to hold as many offices as canon law kind of prohibited this from happening. So you had to have a dispensation in order for him to, to get this office. So it, I don't think buying is necessarily excessively crude right. um, of a way to depict it in this instance. Right. So, uh, and, and this would have happened all the time, you know, somebody gives a very generous donation and, and they're going to get something in return. Still happens today, of course. And so he had to borrow some of this money uh, that he used to get his Archbishop Rick, and it's from the Fuggers in, in Augsburg, and he needs to pay that back. And, and here again, notice the development of a moneyed economy, the early kind of emergence of capitalism. The Fuggers are important bankers at this time. So um, kind of a, a, a money is in a transactional economy. We're going to see that, that playing in. So he's got to pay back his money, Albert does. And so one of the sources of revenue for um, you know, have been used for a very long time um, would be an indulgence. And so he, he, he ha- is given permission to uh, sell these indulgences. Selling's maybe not the right word, but there's certainly a transactional thing going on here. And uh, John Tetzel is going to be the the chief salesman, I suppose we could say, of these indulgences. And so when Martin Luther says, you know what, first of all, he's not the first one to criticize indulgences, of course. This is well-known criticism, Erasmus. It's obvious that this is something that has been abused and is misunderstood by the people. He's going to write, literally, he's going to write these 95 theses for debate, but he's going to send it to Albert. And um, he wants a debate on this. um, And uh, he doesn't necessarily get the debate that he was looking for, but he does does get a debate eventually in Leipzig with with John Eck. Um, But this is the situation that he is in. It's, It's gotten to a point where everybody knows that there's something wrong with this indulgence kinds of thing. And the question becomes, well, what is it about? You know, there's there's certain points you've already mentioned. Well, if the Pope has these keys to unlock, why doesn't he just let everybody out? Of course, the um, the reaction to and that is... And the papacy is, did say there was enough merits to do that, right? The, yep. the papacy wasn't going to limit the amount of merits that Christ earned, right? This would, No. They had a treasury that could abound for all. And I suppose the reaction would be, we can't just pay for everybody to get out there would be some sort of uh you know that that that's that's too cheap kind of way you know people should think about their sins and and you should tell the little kid who spray painted the garage that he needs to pay for it or there whatever. has to be penance yeah so um but then the reaction to that of course is going to be luther saying uh, this isn't truly repentance Right, and so it comes down to what is truly repentance, and eventually you could see ourselves getting to. Eventually, this is going to be a law and gospel issue. This is going to be about is does God forgive, and does it? What does that actually mean? There's going to be a twist, though. Of course, um, in his 95 theses, not saying anything too radical, but Albert, and then later uh, John Eck is going to point out the subtle attack or at least they see it as a subtle attack on the authority of the papacy. And so finally, when Luther is going to get his debate, 
um, against John Eck in Leipzig. He and uh, uh, Karl Stott are going to go up there. Um, Eck really makes it about the authority of the Pope. And Albert sends these 95 theses to the Pope, and I don't think uh, Pope Leo X would have cared that much unless it was pointed out to him um, that this was an attack on the authority of the papacy. I may be wrong on that, but I don't, I don't know that it would have bothered them too much of these criticisms of indulgences. I think they probably would have said, well, yeah, 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 you know, but... Uh, we're stuck with this and this is how we pay for stuff and would have maybe just said this is just a minor theological dispute upon people, you know, in, in academia. But the, the attack on the authority of the papacy really finally is what gets this going. Then you add gas on this fire and you have, uh, first of all, the printing, the 95 theses are printed widely. And so very quickly um, they are... Uh, spread throughout the the German countryside, and people have access to this, which normally they probably wouldn't have. This would have been a dispute, uh, an academic dispute. But then, I think really, Italy versus Germany. This Italian pope is coming in here, and he's taking German money. And I think that kind of maybe nationalistic uh, fervor, uh, you know, is gas on the gas on the fire. And I mean, they're spread really throughout Europe very quickly. So they're they're going to make their way. Um, throughout educated circles um, throughout Europe. And I think you do have nationalism that will play into this, and you'll see this even in Luther's appeal to the German nobility. Um, there was already a lot of um, antipathy means you're unhappy with something, right? Mm-hmm. Antipathy towards um, the ties that the church um, imposed on people and now indulgent sales. People knew these were going over the mountains, and to Rome to build Rome, right? Rome was getting some nice churches. Um, Rome was getting going through a time of uh, architectural and uh, infrastructural and um, just in general renewal. And and you had Germans who felt like they were, imagine, well, we have this still in American politics today. Why are we taking our money and sending it overseas? Or, you know, Wisconsin pays all this money, but look at our roads. What are we getting out of sending money in? Um, we did get a trolley, I suppose, but, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, and, and Luther's not so naive that he's not going to recognize the German considerations in that too. Yeah, and so you know, I don't think at this point Luther's saying, okay, this is how we're going to play the game, and and we're going to you know manipulate all of these kinds of forces that are going out politically and socially. Uh, I, I think Luther really honestly wanted a debate, but I think he becomes pretty savvy very quickly and knows exactly what he's doing. He's not he's not naive to the power of his words and the power of the people and the power of the printing press and the power of marketing himself, too. Uh, let's not pretend like Luther is uh, this country bumpkin uh, who is naive and um, just purely piously points out the um, the the marketing of Tetzel and Albert. I mean, he uses those those things eventually to his benefit, and there's nothing wrong with that either. Um, so the debate then becomes, um, what is repentance, right? Eventually it's going to get to law and gospel. Purgatory is something that's part and parcel of that, but it's not the main issue. Um I don't even think Luther's really considering that the the authority of the Pope is the main issue right now. Um, his opponents try to make that the the main issue. So on fifteen seventeen, um, you know, a little bit of a debate, but I think we both agree that he actually 
nailed the 95 theses to the Castle Church door and sent them to Albert? Would you agree with that historical? I mean, that's the story I like best, and so I tend to, as a <laughs> trained historian, that's usually my standard. You just do what is best. Yeah, there's a little bit of debate, um, as uh, Dr. Kolb would say, w- whether he just sent them or nailed them. Either way, they were posted. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, and maybe let's talk about that scene a little bit. It's not like he got up and and the whole crowds followed him like a Pied Piper, and he he famously nailed this to the church door, and everybody cheered and that kind of stuff. Uh, that's that's not really what happened. He probably would have done it, and maybe you know there's some indications that some people claim that they saw him do it. Maybe they knew exactly what was going on, but I doubt anybody would have really seen this as. Um, that the hammer that changed the hammer blow that changed history, I think that's a later thing that we put back onto that one event. Um, maybe I'll ask you as an historian this question. I, I kind of always been told and thought that the night before All Saints was a very strategic thing for Martin Luther to do that. So the, the relics of Frederick the Wise were on display. There's going to be a lot of people there. November 1st is a day off from school in Europe still today. Um, it's a it's a huge event. People would have been able to see and gone to the castle church. Um, I'm not quite sure if do we have evidence for him being that strategic or just you know this was it was he was just kind of doing this on this day. It was a religious thing, but he wasn't saying, "Oh, this is going to change the world if I do it on this specific day." Yeah, I think an interesting thing to pick up from that would be. Um, well, I, just first by way of that, most of Luther's actions and theology are driven by the circumstances at the time. So I, I think the timing, above all, is just simply um, shaped by this is when the indulgences are being sold. This is when um, Tetzel's at work. But I do think there's an element in that that it's important for us to remember, especially as we're coming off of two sessions on Frederick the Wise. Luther is putting himself at risk not only with the church but with the elector, with Frederick, by doing this because as we've brought up a number of times now, uh, Frederick had a really good relics collection that promised indulgences. And so this was also a swipe at, um, this doesn't mean this was his primary target, but this was, it had implications for the piety and the economy economic interests of Frederick the Wise. And so, um, and we know Luther's not unaware of that because he had been warned about statements he had made about the All Saints Foundation and relics and indulgences before this. You know, Spalatin had said, uh, hey, you could maybe lay off this a little bit. This could be sensitive with the elector. And so Luther is um, being deliberate and being uh, bold um, in posting something that even though the indulgences specifically he's reacting to, which were being sold, weren't being sold in Saxony, that had clear repercussions for things that were taking place, not just in Saxony, but down the street in Wittenberg. Um, And so the timing surely is uh, serendipitous um, either way for what Luther's not just trying to accomplish something in the broader church. He's not even primarily trying to accomplish something in the broader church. Um, he is concerned for how this impacts souls in Wittenberg, um, in the the St. Mary's Kirche and the Stadtkirche, um, and for his students and others. And so I think that is important to keep in mind. Uh, 
this is not something that he could have assumed that Frederick would have received well. And then I think the the other thing um, in connection with that too, if I can segue a bit, and then you can take us back, Mike, uh, wherever you want if you think I just dodged anything. But um, the first thesis for the 95 Theses will become very important for Luther's subsequent theology. I mean, that first thesis is, um, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And I see, excuse me, in this Luther's theology becoming more baptismal, because this thesis in many ways will show up similar language in Luther's explanation of the meaning of baptism, that we daily die and rise in our baptism. It's not that we were baptized, but we are baptized. And so he is getting at a very important content. And you you mentioned this will have implications for law and gospel of what repentance means. And in many ways, uh, the next few years will mean his unpacking of that. And the Leipzig debate will force him to think through the logical consequences of that too, that if the Roman church is teaching a penance that is not biblical repentance, well, then that's clear evidence that popes and councils not only can err, but have erred. And so I think um, that first thesis is probably more Lutheran than Luther even fully realized or could articulate at the time or chose to articulate. And so uh, um, there's a lot of pastoral and local pastoral concern in that. Um, And I think, going back to Frederick the Wise, this shows um, a couple things. It shows how important Luther was to Frederick. Frederick, whether he agreed with Luther or not, he was invested enough in Luther that even though Luther here surely is getting him riled up, uh, he will protect him. Um, But uh, in connection with that too, um, that Frederick will allow the debate to happen um, says something about academic freedom at least, if not um, Frederick's own shifting um, beliefs or theological emphases. And so I, I think a big takeaway from the 95 Theses, and in connection with indulgences then, uh, is that notion of repenting, which is really turning back to the Greek original term as Jesus used it. Um, and, and really, as repentance is used in the Bible, I know sometimes people don't like when we um, kind of use words a little differently than how they're used to using it, but the idea of being repented, right, something that God does to us, Um, You can see the kernels of that there. But I do think um, whether or not it was intentional, the connection with All Saints Day um, was important. Uh, And and whenever we study history, sometimes we want to get at, you know, well, does this thing that's super meaningful, did the person originally intend it to have the super meaningful connection? Uh, Sometimes the question of intention is secondary in history. The fact is, it did become more meaningful because it did happen this way. Yeah, I think Luther um, is driven by pastoral concern. I mean, uh, you know, he's 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 hearing people in the confessional booth right at this time, and they're like, "I got this indulgence from you know across the across the border and got this indulgence or whatever," and and he's trying to be pastoral to them for them to have literal, actual, authentic. I'm sorry, contrition, contrite. Uh, repentance, and they're just buying that, and 
and buying the indulgence and there's something wrong. And so he's driven by pastoral concern, but he certainly knows exactly what he's doing at the same time. You know, how much did he, you know, say, okay, the 31st and right before All Saints Day and the All Saints Society and all that kind of stuff, you know, I, I suppose we don't, we don't really, really know fully. But we can think about a similar situation in the church today. You may be um, a pastor that's been assigned a paper or something, and um, you know that you, you should say this, and it's going to ruffle some feathers, and you may write, wait for the right time. You may pull some punches. You may be told, this is not going to be good, even though I totally agree with what you're saying. This is, you're not the right person. This is not the right time. It still happens today as well. And so I, I think really a huge, we should give a huge uh, pat on the back to Frederick the Wise here, that he doesn't take it personal, that he doesn't stop Luther out even though he could have, that he, like you said, academic freedom, let this debate. Yeah, he needs Luther, but, you know, he <laughs> he doesn't need, need Luther, right? And a lesser man would have um, have not been as wise and would not have taken that that public blow. Um, and so a huge kudos, of course, to, to Frederick the Wise for being a bigger person than I know I would be. And that's a lesson for us when somebody comes out with something, maybe the time's not right, maybe he or she is a little bit ahead of their time and we bristle at what they have to say to actually stop, think about it as dispassionately as you can, as much as we can at, at first glance, and don't just say, okay, you know, you're wrong, and then that's it. So I think the pastoral concern of Luther, coupled with knew what he's doing, and then really that, I mean, Frederick the Wise allowing this to happen and not stomping out Luther. I mean, these are moments where things could have gone different for the Reformation, and they didn't. Yeah, and I think my just two additional things, and then I'll let you wrap up, Mike, would be, once again, that we, we do a disservice when we oversimplify what indulgences were or mischaracterize them. Uh, you know, once again, they were not to get you um, out of hell, right? Christ did that. The eternal punishment of your sin, Christ had handled. But this was for temporal consequences, temporal punishment. And if not in practice, in theology, they were meant to be connected with a show of an act of piety or a contrition, um, confession, holy communion. Um, and so we can speak we can rightly speak about the abuse of them because even according to the theology of the day, which we would disagree with regarding indulgences, they were being abused according to that theology as well. And then I guess secondly, the importance of the turn to a biblical understanding of repentance as opposed to penance. And I think this is something that the church needs to be reminded of in every age because the church can very easily fall into um, the ditch of penance as opposed to repentance. Um, and, uh, and that has big implications for how we treat each other and for law and gospel and for the gospel being gospel um, and a final word. And as we close out, I, you know, remind ourselves today that we, when we think about our repentance, think about it, God repenting us, um, that this is a part of faith. And we can fall into our own little kind of indulgence uh, sort of false doctrine by saying, am I repentant enough? Do I need to do these things? Do I really feel repentant? And you lose the security of that baptismal life that, yes, you are forgiven. 
It is a, a daily thing when you are struggling with sins and are forgiven. You're exactly where you need to be. Um, and so that little switch there, it's subtle, um, just much like the indulgence debate back then was more subtle than we thought. It's subtle, this difference of I don't repent myself and then I get forgiveness but rather God does it all for me and it's found in the baptismal life. So friends, go live that baptismal life. Let the bird fly. And uh, when you come back next time in our Winging It series, I don't know, we'll be in 1518. Every evening when the sun goes down Get my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I say I'm up Another round, I'll set him up. Another round, I'll set him up. Another round, one more round, get me down. I don't care what